Will you pray with me? <clears throat> Father God, we just want to come before you this morning again, recognizing that we all come into this space with, with different things. Uh, some of us come in rejoicing, and Lord, may we rejoice together in that. Some of us come together uh, in, with sorrow on our, or, or burdens on our hearts. We pray that you meet us in that space as well. Um, that whatever we take here, we can leave at the foot of the cross, that we can, that we can realize that each day is a new day because you love us and care for us. God, as we approach your word here in a minute, we pray that your spirit be amongst us. So they aren't just words written on a page from long ago, but words spoken to each of us because your spirit is here amongst us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. So if you've been with us for, the, for this year, the year of 2020, you know that we've been slowly working our way through the book of Matthew, uh, that we've been looking at each piece uh, and trying to tackle the entirety of the book. And one of the things that's really great about doing that is you see this progression that starts to build as we're working through, through the book. And so we, we, one of the foundations that we've had as we've been talking about Matthew is that we realize the book of Matthew uh, presents this big concept that we have, this concept of kingdom. Right? Throughout, the, throughout, the, throughout the book of Matthew, we, we have this declaration that the kingdom of God is all around us. The beginning of Jesus' ministry in the book of Matthew starts with that phrase. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And so really, as we then moved into the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teachings throughout the book of Matthew, we realized that that phrase is kind of the linchpin that holds a lot of it together. The idea that Jesus is betraying there gets pulled through to every single aspect of what we read in Matthew. Because we've talked week after week, which I know you've heard over and over again, which is okay, uh, that the word repent itself simply means to turn. That we're heading in one direction, maybe, maybe not a great one, and it takes us then to turn back towards the way that God wants us to. Uh, the word repent isn't supposed to be a term of judgment or something to push you down. It's supposed to be an invitation back to life. And so Jesus' ministry starts that way. It says, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. He then moves into the Sermon on the Mount where he invites people from all walks of life. He says, those of you who are hurting, God's with you. Those of you who just want to see justice in the world, God's with you. He says, those of you who think you're meek, God's with you. Those of you who are poor in spirit, where you think Zeus can't hear you, God is with you too. It's this declaration that the kingdom is here for everybody. He moves from that into the, into the rest of his Sermon on the Mount in which he says there are certain ways to live that could help you experiencing, experience the flourishing that comes from living a kingdom life. He says there are certain things you can do that are compatible with a kingdom life and moving into those you're going to experience the abundance of God in that space. He also says there are certain things that aren't and will actually pull you away from flourishing. Uh, we call those things sin. There's a mark to be aimed at and we might be missing that mark, and so we turn back towards it. Last couple weeks, we've been talking about, um, well, first we moved from there into locations in which Jesus did a lot of different miracles. But then last week, uh, we, we started another little mini-series in, or I'm sorry, three weeks ago, we started another little mini-series in Matthew we've been calling Bad Theology. And in that space, we've looked at how we as the church structure, the religious structure, can get it wrong from time to time. We, Lisa opened us up by talking about how sometimes religion divides us. That instead of pulling us together in unity, instead we, we end up fighting over these little different things. Uh, for back past, after that, we talked about John the Baptist and how sometimes in faith we expect things to go a certain way and they don't. And then last week, we kind of called out the church. Last week was a, 
was a heavier one because we realized that sometimes our religious structures become idols. They become the thing that we're doing, and so we actually, as we're trying to find God, we miss him entirely. We talked about how the cities in which Jesus did most of his miracles were part of something called the religious triangle. Three, church, three cities that were focused on being the most religious in their area, and they missed Jesus entirely. They spent their entire lives trying to find God, and when he was in their midst, they never even recognized him. We talked about sometimes we end up in that space too. That setting up these structures of what we, what we think is right can sometimes actually push people away from who God is. We talked last week that we were called into following God, not just the structures that we build. Which leads us to this week, where, we, where, where questions then get asked, where, where do we go from there? If we recognize the structures we build can be wrong sometimes, how do, we, how do we deal with that? How do we understand what's right and wrong? How do we understand the direction we're supposed to head? And in order to start to tackle that, I actually want to tell a story about a guy uh, who lived in ancient Greece around 230 B.C., Uh, He actually lived in a city of Syracuse. Um, There was a man named Archimedes. Maybe you've heard of him before. He kind of looked like this. This is supposed to be him. Got some beard envy. That's a solid beard right there. If you've you've heard of him, if you haven't heard of him before, he was a major player in history. Uh, He's one of the the historical geniuses we have inside of humanity. Um, He did a lot of different things. He was a mathematician. He was a philosopher. He was a physicist. He was an inventor. He invented a lot of amazing things. A couple of things, um, some of the things he invented just helped humanity as a whole. One, his Archimedes screw, which you see here in the next slide on the left, um, he invented a way to transport large amounts of water uphill uh, with this screw function that he'd made. Uh, he also was really creative in building weapons. Um, we're actually legendary, maybe not so legendary that they're not true. It's hard to tell. Some of these inventions, you're like, did, did he actually do that? Uh, the one on the right there is supposedly a heat ray. So Syracuse is on the water, so, um, so when boats are coming in, they're made of wood, and if you want to defeat the boats, you can, you know, if you ever burned an ant when you were little, it's the same idea, right? Hopefully you didn't, that's cruel, but you all know what I'm talking about, which means you did repent, turn. Just, just kidding. <laughs> but the idea was that he, would set up, he could set up these mirrors on the wall and then start the ships on fire. Now, we're not sure it actually worked, but he, act, he at least designed plans for it. He was a, he was a match, massive contributor uh, in the field of math and, math and other things in that way. Actually, um, one of the first people to actually begin to tackle calculus, which um, I'm pretty sure is a result of sin too, but, you know, that's okay. Um, my sister's a math teacher. She would hate that I made that joke. She loves calculus somehow. Um, it's not my thing, but maybe some of you is it, for some of you it is. But one of the most recognizable stories of Archimedes kind of goes like this. Maybe you've heard it before. It's a hot day in Syracuse. It's sticky. It's sweaty. All day long, Archimedes has been thinking and pondering on this problem that he has. Uh, he's trying to, he, he's, he, he's, he just be, he's realized the importance of knowing, about, knowing how, exactly how much space something takes up. He's built a series of math problems to try to calculate the volume of different objects. And some of those objects were really easy. A cube is easy to calculate the volume of, right, because it's got equal uniform sides. He figured that out already. Spheres were a little harder because they're round, but we have pi, and so we can figure that out too, the volume of a sphere. Cones are even a little harder because they change, uh, and they're, they're, they're conical, and they have uh, uh, you know, the different sizes there, but 
There's still uniformity to it, so he's figured that out as well. He could figure out the volume of all of these things, but now he's stuck with a new problem. How do you measure the volume of an irregular shape? For instance, how do you measure, how do you measure the volume of a person, right, where each part is not uniform, and the math problem to figure that out is incredibly complicated? How do you figure out, and actually the, the kind of the catalyst that was driving him to this is how do you calculate how much gold is in a crown? So he, he had been brought a problem that said somebody claimed that they had a crown made for themselves out of gold and they claimed that they were gypped, that the amount of gold that should have been in that crown wasn't. And so he says, how do I measure the volume of gold in this particular crown? He'd been struggling with it for a long time, and as someone who's used to getting things done and figuring things out, he was really, really frustrated. So at the end of this day, he decides he's got to hang it up. His mind is still racing, uh, but like we said, it's a hot and sticky day, so he pulls for himself a bath, and he's going to relax in the bath while he winds down for the day. And the way the story goes is when he sits down, he realizes something, that as he sits in the tub, the water level goes up, Right? He stands back up, the water level goes back down. He sits down in the water again, and it goes right back up to where it was before. And all of a sudden, a light bulb goes off, and he claims, proclaims, Eureka, right? That was the, that's the moment. That's the big Eureka moment, where, where all of a sudden, all of the things click together, and he realizes something that he couldn't have seen before. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life in particular, I love these kind of moments. I haven't had a solving the volume of an irregular object moment. That's a pretty big deal. Um, but, I ha- but, but I have had other times in which you've been, I've been wrestling with something or thinking about something, and all of a sudden those pieces kind of lock together, right? It is one of my favorite experiences. Anybody else with me on that one? Right? It's just great when all of a sudden the thing you've been wrestling with, the, the ideas that you have, this place that you're stuck, all of a sudden falls into place. So last week... We talked about how it was possible for us as a church to lose our way. When we get more focused on our structures or the things that we want to do than we do on Jesus. And that holds true still today. But it does then force us into another question. And actually, a question that was asked by one of you last week right after the service. If we're we're asking ourselves to continually be looking at our structures and realizing that sometimes the things that we've said are right aren't, How do we actually know when something is right or wrong? Is there an objectivity to right and wrong? Right? Which is a a tough question to answer, especially in light of what we've seen in Jesus throughout the book of Matthew, where constantly he's saying, hey, you guys thought it was this way, but I tell you it was this way. Creates this weird space inside of us to go, what is actually right then? If the Bible is the word of God, doesn't it tell us then objectively what is right and what is wrong? What is, that there is the right way to do something. I wonder if that same question was running through Matthew's mind as well. Because right after he finishes his critique on the religious system, he moves into this next story in Matthew 12. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 12. which says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. So here it is. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the field on, on, on the Sabbath day, and they're hungry. And so they eat some grain. 
Now, at this particular point, like the story we looked at last week, Jesus has also already called the Pharisees out a few times, and they didn't like that. And so often they would then follow him and watch him for ways they could catch him. And this is what they, in this particular instance, they thought that's what they'd done. Because they had a very strict rule that there was no work to be done on the Sabbath at all. And they just saw Jesus harvest food and then eat it. And so they're upset. Now, before we, we, we actually answer why that was a problem for them, there's a few things I just wanted to remind us before we do that. I think for myself and maybe for some of you, it's really, really easy to view the Pharisees as kind of like supervillains, right? That they're the bad guys in the story. Um, actually, for a good portion of my life, I viewed them a lot like Magneto, right? Just like they kind of did their things and they just wanted to cause destruction in the world, right? They wanted to advance whatever they, whatever they did for kind of real, they're, they're like the Sith or the Dominion. You pick your, pick your evil course. Some people like the Sith better than they like. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, that's not a fair take as we're talking about the Pharisees. When you think about the Pharisees in their mind, they're just pastors. Uh, most of them, some of them, sure, are corrupt. We see them in Scripture. Most of them were just trying to do their best to follow what, what they believed God had for them. I actually think that when we, when we set them up as these kind of evil villains in the story, uh, it, it allows us to, to differentiate ourselves from them more than we ought um, far too often when we look, read the stories of the Pharisees, what we see is a reflection of ourselves. Um, I know I do for me. Um, when you realize that they're, they're normal people trying their best to follow God, and sometimes they just have a misunderstanding of what that looks like. That's my life a lot. I think we see that in this story as well. So what are they upset about? Well, they're upset because of Exodus 20, verse 8, which says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you should do, shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Pharisees are upset because God had told them not to do work on the Sabbath. And so they took that command very seriously. And why wouldn't they, right? God told them not to work, so they didn't work. It was, for them, it was clear and objective and obvious. Don't do any work at all. Prep everything days before. And honestly, there's some really good things we could draw from that understanding. But Jesus isn't doing things in what they considered to be the right way. And actually, as we read through Matthew, both already and where we're going to go in the future, we'll see that he does that a lot. He seems to be constantly breaking the rules. It's part of the reasons the Pharisees get so mad at him. And that forces us then into another space. What do we do with that? Does it mean rules don't matter? Is Jesus wrong? I don't think we want to go there. Is there not a right and a wrong way to do things? And how do we know what that is? How do we interact with what seems to be objective in the Old Testament? The Pharisees' understanding of not working isn't hard for our minds to grasp, right? Just, it's concrete. Just don't work, period. End of story. And yet Jesus pushes back on that. So what do we do with all of that? I want to continue by looking at what Jesus does with it. Matthew 12, verse 3. He, Jesus, answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? 
He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priest on the Sabbath day in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you, that one, is one, that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a human being than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So what we have here is we have the Pharisees saying, hey, we have a simple objective rule. This is right. This is how you ought to do things. And for large portions of their life, that works. But then we see these instances that Jesus gives and when that, that objective, simple rule doesn't seem to work anymore. As much as we'd hope that it would, it just doesn't. And the thing is that we have examples like that all the time. Like in our lives, we, we have simple rules that will work in many circumstances, but then there are times where the simplicity doesn't work. Maybe, a, maybe this example will help us kind of wrap our minds around it different. Imagine you're going to go on a hiking trip. So you pack a bag with a lunch and put it on your back. You walk to the trailhead, and on the trailhead, it says there are two rules for this particular trail. First, Take out anything you bring in. Pretty standard trail rule, right? Whatever you take in, make sure you take out with you because we want to preserve the beauty of nature all around us. Second rule is don't leave the path. Don't leave the pre-described marked path. So you're, you're like, great, standard rules. These are pretty normal if you've ever done any hiking. So you hike in, you get to this beautiful spot, you set up your lunch, you start eating, and their lunch bag blows away. Stuck in a bush off the trail. What do you do? You're stuck, right? If you, if, in order to go get the bag, you have to leave the trail. You would break that rule. If you leave the bag, then you've broken the second rule. Don't leave anything behind. You're stuck. What do you do? How do you make that decision? In this particular case, it's impossible to function just off the letter of the law. You need to find a different criteria to make your decision, don't you? How many of you would go get the letter? Okay. How many of you would stay on the path? Interesting. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You're not decided yet. You've got to wrestle with it a little bit longer. That's okay. Now, why would you go get the litter, though? I'm curious what your answer might be. This is, gonna, this is vulnerable for somebody because you're going to have to answer. Why do you pick the litter over not leaving the path? Creation care. Yeah, I was hoping someone would answer that. Thanks, Kyle. Nailed it. Makes my point stronger. Um, <laughs> I would guess the reason that many of you decide to go get the litter is because you understand the why of those two rules, right? It even says it on the sign is that in order to keep nature around us clean, we want to make sure that you don't leave the path and you don't leave anything behind. We realize then that in this particular thing, as we're weighing those two options against each other, if we're careful leaving the path, our impact on nature is less than if we leave trash, right? We better fulfill the why of those two rules by breaking the don't leave the path rule rather than the litter rule. Is that fair? Right. 
I would argue that's what Jesus is doing here too. You see, Jesus knows that God has always cared more about the why of his instruction than the what. He gives a bunch of examples of that in this particular passage we just wrote. He even quotes Hosea. In the, in the time of Hosea, Israel had, had, had kind of lost their path. They, had, they, they were willing to do the sacrifices God offered, but had completely lost the why of why they did it. They didn't care for the poor around them. They didn't care for the people in their space. And so God declares in Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The why behind why I asked you to do certain things matters more than the what you did. So Jesus reminds the Pharisees that the Sabbath then was made for us. It was made so that we could rest. Not so that we could somehow honor God. I mean, it is honoring God, but it, the, the why of it is he gave it to, man is made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for man. Or man wow. I, Kyle helped my point a lot, and then I just butchered that one so badly you're all confused. So we're even now, right? We'll just call that even. I'm going to restart that last phrase. Ignore everything for the last five seconds. Restart. He's talking about Sabbath. What Jesus reminds the Pharisees is that God gave us the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, not for God. There we go. That was easier. The why of it is so that we can be encouraged to rest and reflect on God. <clears throat> What we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and the law is that that why matters so much. That each of the Old Testament laws are meant to do one of two things. We say it here often. They're, they're, they're meant to either draw us into a deeper relationship with God or a deeper love with each other. And so that then still does leave us with the question we started then, though. Does that mean there isn't a right and wrong answer? Because we can go back to the why of why God's asked us to do certain things, but that leaves us then in a muddy place, doesn't it? It leaves things ambiguous. It forces us to wrestle with things differently, and we might come to different conclusions, which we actually see all around us, don't we? And that can make a lot of us uncomfortable. Maybe it's made you uncomfortable in the past, because we, as humans, we like black and white answers, don't we? Something that's crystal clear. Do this, don't do that. Always do this, don't do that. So what is God doing here? See, I think what Jesus is teaching us is he's teaching us how to make decisions rather than, than what decision to make. What do I mean by that? Well, there are times in our lives where we need to be told exactly what to do. Right? Maybe it's don't lie or don't hit or don't talk back. Right? You get it. You've experienced those in your lives. When we're young, either in age or in faith, Often we need to be told exactly what to do in order to flourish in the best way possible. Honestly, this was a lesson that I didn't fully have my mind wrapped around until I had kids myself. Any of you that's had, been around kids, or maybe it's a niece or a nephew, whatever it might be, there's a certain era, era, age, age range that they're in where, where you just need to tell them what to do, right? Where actually trying to negotiate or to explain doesn't work all that well. Anybody ever been in that spot? Have you ever tried to reason with a four-year-old? Uh, that's hard sometimes, right? It can be immensely frustrating. And so in those particular spaces, we have to say exactly what to do. And actually, even as they get older, that starts to shift. I, I love it with my kids as much as possible to explain the why behind, a, behind what I've asked them to do. Hey, we've made this decision because this is what we think the outcomes will be. And yet even with, teen, with almost teenagers... 
There are still times where I have to go because I said so, right? We live in that space where the clear direction needs to be had as, as they're maturing. Because it, while we're still young, whether it's in age or in faith, there just are certain things that we can't understand yet. Whether it's because of development or experience, our minds just aren't in a space where we can fully grasp the magnitude of certain things. Is everybody tracking with me on this? Good. And so, as we're, as we're learning both as people and as kids, we realize that we start with these simple maxims. Don't hit your sister. Don't ever hit anyone. And 95, 98, 99% of the time, those simple maxims work for the situations we find ourselves in, especially while we're younger. But then as we grow, we realize that, there, then, that, that the world is a complex place, and all of a sudden, those simple ideas don't work in every situation anymore. We're, we're forced into a situation like the hiking paradox we were in. That whichever one we choose isn't going to have a perfectly clear answer. And so we're forced to then wrestle with the problem differently, to find a different solution. We're forced to wrestle with the why of why that particular thing was being asked so that we can come to a conclusion that better meets that. Which brings us back to where we started with Archimedes. While trying to find the volume of all the different things, his basic framework worked at first. Cubes have constant sides, and so his math problems could fix it, or could figure it out. Spheres have a uniformity, so math could figure it out easily. Cones, all of that's consistent. His simple math equations, or relatively complex math equations, worked in those spaces until he needed to measure the volume of an irregular object, something that was different than what he was used to without uniformity. And so his rules didn't work anymore. And so he needed to wrestle with a different way, to find a different solution, to come to his answer in a different framework. Now what I want, to, want us to notice, though, is that it's easy then to think that all those elementary uh, ideas of understanding things were useless. But I don't think that's what we see in that story at all. I would argue that if Archimedes hadn't already been wrestling with all of those questions, if he hadn't been working so hard to figure out the answer to regular volume, he would have sat down in the tub and noticed that it goes up, went up like every other human being that's ever sat in a tub before, right? He would have noticed it, but it would have no idea how to use it for anything, uh, for, use it for anything like he needed. It was precisely because he had done the work with the elementary questions that he could observe a, a phenomenon and know what it meant in his context. It's because he understood math and volume in general that he could understand what it meant for the water to go up. And I think that's how faith works too. There are best answers to the things we face every single day, and some of those are easy. Most of the time, it is, it is you, we ought not lie, right? The answer to that question is most often no. But my guess is you already know the question I'll ask to kind of throw that into a paradox, right? What if I'm hiding people from somebody who wants to kill them? Then is it appropriate to lie? Yeah, right? Because, I'm, because, my, because it's helping me love someone better. It forces me to wrestle with it around the why rather than the simple understanding. But because I've spent time understanding the simple idea, I can use it to inform my more complex situation.
what we find is that as we grow, we start to use the simple ideas that God's give, given us to understand the more complex situations we find ourselves in. Now, with that being said, maybe you're in a space in your faith life right now where you're not sure how to do that wrestling. Maybe you're not in a place where you know how to wrestle inside of Scripture or through prayer. I think in those spaces, we just understand that we're more immature in our faith in that way, and that is not a criticism. It's just as it, it is what it is. And in those cases, then we default to the simpler answers. If I don't know how to wrestle with whether I should lie or not, I probably should just not. But Jesus here is seeking to teach us how to make complex decisions. How do we wrestle with Scripture to do this? And so in this message, for the most part, we've been pretty abstract. But I want to end today with just giving us a couple handles, hopefully take us back from 10,000 feet down to something we can use on a day-to-day -day basis. So how do we make biblical decisions on what's right and wrong? And we've kind of already said it this morning, but the first step is just to begin with the basics. We build a foundation of understanding of what God teaches if you don't understand what the Bible has to say to you about what, is it, what, is, what, what helps guide us into a kingdom kind of life and what doesn't, we're starting in a really bad place. We have to ask ourselves the question, what, uh, we, what is God trying to teach us in this space about what's right and wrong? Something like the Ten Commandments is a good starter. Right? Don't kill people. That's a good one for all of us. We can just do that. Right? It's not good for us to covet. It's not good for us to, to, to not rest on the Sabbath. Those kind of things. It's a great place to start with those basic ideas. We begin by just asking, what is, what is God teaching? But we also need to understand as we read through Scripture who God is. As we're starting with the basics, if you don't understand who God is and what he's trying to accomplish in this world, it's going to be really hard to figure out the why of what he's asked you to do. And so as we're starting to grow in our faith about how we make complex decisions, we have to ask, what does God say and who is he when he says it so that I can understand how to apply it? And then finally, out of those two things, then we ask ourselves, what are some simple things that we can do? What has God asked of me? Why has God asked it? And how do I do something about it? We start with the basics there, the foundation, the building blocks of where we go when we make those particular decisions. But we realize, though, that that's not where we ought to stay. When we're, when we're young in life, simple things work really well. And as we grow, we need to have more complex things to make our same decisions. In faith, it works the same way. When you're beginning in faith, those simple elementary building blocks are super important. But you're never meant to stay with just the simple elementary building blocks. Actually, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. In this particular case, we see what we've been talking about on display. This is what Paul does in Corinth. He comes and he says, hey, you guys are just starting out in your faith. You're infants in Christ. So milk is appropriate for an infant. Basic principles are appropriate for them as they're starting out in their faith. But you can see in there that the charge is that Paul's giving is for them not to just stay infants in Christ, but to grow. As we grow physically, we've said this here before, you move from milk to solid food. In your faith, the same is true. You start with your simple ideas and move into more complex ones. So we begin with the basics, and then we move into the second part with, with wrestling with the why of what God has asked us to do. 
Every single law that God has given has been for two things. We've already said that. It's either to draw us into a deeper connection with God or with each other. And so we have to say, if, when God asks me this, what is he trying to accomplish? What's the why? Does it draw me closer to God or does it help me love other people better? So with the passage we looked at today, why does God ask us to keep the Sabbath? I think it's because he knows we're bad at resting, right? If he doesn't give us a regular rhythm of saying, you need to actually shut it down for a little bit, to refocus yourself on who God is and, and just to recharge your body, we won't do it. How many of you have ever struggled with keeping a regular Sabbath? Yeah, me too, right? If God doesn't tell us to, we probably won't do it. Why does God ask us not to kill? Right? Because he knows that we as humans have a tendency to not view each other as human. And we can go down that road. We've seen it in human history. Or not to covet or to lie because he knows it's not good for us and he wants to lead us out of that space. Every single thing that God has asked us to do draws us either into a deeper relationship with him or with each other. And so it's appropriate then to ask ourselves, what is this thing that God asked me to do accomplish? When we wrestle with how to apply the why of each situation, we start to understand God better and start to understand how to make more complex decisions. If, the, if, if, if we understand why God has asked a certain thing, then we get to a place and when, when, where we're asked the question, do we heal on the Sabbath? And the answer is easy. Because Jesus says, well, if I know who God is, I know that he values life, he values flourishing. If I heal, I'm working, not resting. And the Sabbath, the Sabbath is supposed to create a reg, rather regular rhythm of rest. What Jesus realizes is that if he heals, he's fully honoring the first value while only temporarily suspending the second. It's very similar to the hiking example. If the why was nature, I can I preserve nature better by walking off the trail. If the why is flourishing and resting, but it's in conflict with the other value of caring for human life, it's clear that caring for human life wins out. Now, the, the, the common response to that is, then doesn't it start a slippery slope? Maybe. Could we begin to say, I'm going to suspend this, this particular maxim for now and then fall into a rhythm where we do it regularly? Yeah, we could. It's why it requires us to constantly go back and wrestle with the why of what we're doing. It also leads us into the last point I want to close with today. When we're trying to figure out how do we make hard decisions about what's right and wrong, we begin with the basics. Who's God? What has he asked me to do? We move then into wrestling with the why. Why has God asked me to do this? Does it draw me into a deeper love with him or does it draw me into a deeper love with someone else? And we realize that in that complexity, we just need to not do it alone. We don't wrestle alone. And honestly, this, this really should be the first one because there's two parts to it. First, as we're wrestling, we invite God into the wrestling with us. We begin with prayer. In the book of James, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given. Saying if you're going to be wrestling with what is wise and right to do here, you need to invite the Holy Spirit into the process. We don't wrestle through these questions by ourselves. We start by actually wrestling with God. We, we start by Israeling. Remember we talked about that last week, that when God has a chance to define his people for history, he changes their name to Israel, which literally means wrestle with God. And that's what we do in this last part. We invite God in to say, what do I do here? I need wisdom to figure out how to, to, how to get through this particular situation. 
But then we also realize as we read Scripture that God has set us up to not do this whole faith journey by ourselves. We've mentioned it a number of times. It's a weird thing for God to trust his message to a group of people like us because we're really bad at it sometimes, right? And we talked last week about how we can mess it up and actually sometimes even direct people away from who God is. But what he knows is that as we're going to wrestle with these complex things, we need each other. That we need, to, we need to trust each other, we need to read together, we need to pray together, we need to inform each other and speak into each other's lives because it's, only, it's the only way we figure it out. We can start with the basics. That part's the easiest, usually. But then we wrestle with the why and things start to get more muddy. We start to realize that there might be some paradoxes in which if we do one thing, we're going to violate another and that's going to require us a different kind of wrestling. We might even get stuck because of that muddiness, so then God says, that's why you need to have me in it with you and then with each other. If we're willing to wrestle in that way, the church becomes a place in which we all find the path to flourishing. We realize it's not easy. We realize it's hard work. We realize that that part of it is in the community. But we also avoid so many of the pitfalls that we found last week. So the question that was asked last week, is there objective right and wrong? Yes, there is. How do we find it is harder. Sometimes it's simple, many times it's not. I'll close with one final thought. As you're thinking about what is true, I actually think Aristotle has been one, so Aristotle, an ancient Greek philosopher, again, I've been with two philosophers now from ancient Greece, But when he was asked about whether truth is objective, is there an objectively right answer to any particular question, he answered it this way, which I think is kind of helpful. He said, every situation has an objectively right answer, a thing that would be the best possible outcome for that particular space. He said, if you were able to take a situation in which you picked the best right answer and replicate all aspects of that situation again, the same answer would be right the second time. Following? He says, but... If you change a single variable, including wind speed or temperature, it says your objectivity moves a little bit. Saying there's objective truth that exists, but it's immensely complex. As I read through scripture, some things are really easy, but often when people ask Jesus for a particular answer, uh, an objective answer, how does he answer? With a question, right, or a parable. So often when they say, Who, what is this thing? Wait, for instance, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story about a guy who got mugged. You're like, wait, what? I said, who's my neighbor? Yeah, I know. I'm going to tell you a story about a guy who got mugged. Well, what do I do with that? Wrestle with it. Churn it over because it's not that simple. I want us, as we step into this next season of church, as we rebuild coming out of a pandemic, there's a world right now that is disillusioned with what is true. Can we all agree on that? That people are desperate to figure out what actually is real because the misinformation of everything is all over the place. You're being, we're inundated with more information than we've ever been uh, inundated with before. And it is more confusing than it's ever been. And there is a desperate hope for some kind of anchor, something to help us understand what is right and what's not. I wish I could give the easy answers of this is right, but I think that's what got us into this mess in the first place. 
If we're committed to being people who say, we may not know, but we're definitely committed to starting with the basics, to understanding why God's asked us to do certain things, and then wrestling with God and each other around what we ought to do, I think we become a huge bright spot of hope to a world that needs it so desperately. So hopefully, you'll join us in that journey, and hopefully, we'll start to see the beautiful kingdom life that comes when we Israel, when we wrestle with God. Will you pray with me? Father God, we, <clears throat> we, just, we realize that in this world, there are beautiful and wonderful things. One of your parables, you described it as wheat. There are, there, there are, it's easy for us to lose, it, lose sight of it, but we can see kingdom life all around us. But we recognize that there also are weeds that grow along the wheat, things that are hurtful and hard and confusing, we realize that sometimes to know what the right way to do something is, to, to know the right way to do something is difficult to figure out. And so God, we pray for your wisdom in that. And James, you said if we lack it, you'll give it to us. So as we as a community try to wrestle with what direction you've given to us, what is right, what's not right, we pray that your spirit will constantly be informing our decisions. May we be a community in which your spirit guides us to pull each other pull to each other's aid inside as we wrestle with hard things. We may not have to may not agree on everything. But we're committed to, that, to the process, to the wrestling with the difficulties of this world to find the best way to have each of us flourish. God, may we draw closer to you so out of that we can love each other better. Amen.